In my 20s, I realized that design could do so much more. Design wasn't just about creating an aesthetic offer. Design relates to life. Everything around us is design. It has the power to elevate the human spirit, to improve health, to improve well-being, or it has the power to reduce it. Hello, welcome to Design Lab. I'm your host, Bon Ku. On this show, we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? This week, we travel all the way to the United Kingdom, well, virtually, that is, to meet with Rama Giraro. Rama is the director of the Helen Hamlin Center for Design at the Royal College of Art in London. He is an international figure within design. He won a Design Week Hall of Fame award in 2019, and was named a 2018 Creative Leader by Creative Review alongside Paul Smith and Bjork. He uses design to address diversity through age, ability, gender, and race. He's a serial innovator in the field of inclusive design and design thinking, having led over 100 international projects with government, business, academia, and third sector clients. He champions inclusive and empathic approaches through his pathfinding work in creative leadership, having trained thousands of people, including over 700 civil servants. I really enjoyed my conversation with Rama. You, as a listener, can support this show just by going to Apple Podcasts, giving us five stars, and leaving us a comment. Or just follow us on whatever platform you use to consume podcasts. We are still trying to get back to our cadence of weekly shows, but we didn't drop one last week. It's because my producer, Rob Puglisi, and I, we've been on a team setting up vaccination clinics here in Philadelphia. In some zip codes, we have over 70% of residents who have gotten one dose, but in other less affluent zip codes, that rate plummets to the low 30s. And this is reflective of what's going on in our country. So that's what we've been working on when we're not doing the show. And thank you for your patience. But we hope to get back to our weekly schedule soon. In the meantime, please enjoy my conversation with Rama. Rama Giraro, thanks for being on Design Lab. So thrilled to have you on. It's a real pleasure. In doing my research on you, you have said, Indian classical music influenced your career as a designer. Can you talk more about that? <laughs> you have done your research. Indian classical music has been one of the great training grounds for a design career. It is about creativity. It's about being in the moment. It's about experiment. And those are all things that lend themselves very well to design. I think if you can teach Indian classical music to anyone, you can teach design. So I, I did a particular type of Indian classical music, which originates from South India called Carnatic music. And that's even more difficult in, in some ways than North Indian music, because you play with microtones, subtleties and nuances. So understanding, breathing, living, loving, those little dependencies and codependencies between the notes. It gave me an eye for detail and a love of precision, but also a love of perfection that comes to design. It sounds a little bit like jazz music. It's exactly like jazz music. So 
you you may not have fixed strategies and structures and you you play a lot in the moment what occurs for the audience that's sitting in front of you and that is also design i i, I love that and you wanted to become a designer from a very early age right at age 14 or 15 is that right that's right i wanted to go to the Royal College of Art when I was 14 after reading an article about car design. I actually managed to work in the car industry when I was 19 and it soon changed my perception. But Wait, you, you were designing cars at age 19? I was um, working for a company. So I was designing small parts of big cars. I was working for a British car company that doesn't exist any longer. But I realized what stayed with me throughout those teenage years was a love of design and a love of creativity. In my 20s, I realized that design could do so much more. Design wasn't just about creating an aesthetic offer. Design relates to life. Everything around us is design. If you look at your room, your house, your life, your office, Almost everything has been through a design decision. And that made me think about the equanimity of design, the applicability of it to everything around us. You know, if a designer makes a good decision, it can enable someone's life. If it's a challenging decision or a negative one, it disables. Mm. So that is the actions that design holds in its hands. That's the power that it has. It has the power to elevate the human spirit, to improve health, to improve well-being, or it has the power to reduce it. Mm. So thinking about design in that way, it became a lifelong career, a lifelong ambition. And I think it's more than a career, it's a way of life. So your design journey began at a very young age. Did you come from a family of designers? I come from a family of teachers. So my grandfather, paternal grandfather was a headmaster and my mother was a headmistress at the age of 24. Hmm. So I think embedded in me is this idea of communicating, of sharing and going back to Indian music. If you could teach Indian classical music, I felt you could share these new practices of design the kind of design I do is called inclusive design, which very simply put includes the needs of the widest number of people hmm. because people can be excluded in all sorts of ways. So we particularly look at age, ability, gender, and race hmm. as four ways in which people are not considered by mainstream design. And in terms of, I should ask this up front, but did you grow up in, you're joining us from the UK. Did you grow up in the UK and is your family from the UK? That's right. I was born in the UK, brought up in the UK, but I think of myself as tricultural. I'm Indian in terms of ancestry. I'm South American Guyanese by descent and I'm oh, British cool. by birth. Oh, wow. I love the global nature of that. I often say, my home is London, but my heart is global. I, I want to talk about your jump from mechanical engineering, which you originally had started in university. Then you went to industrial design. 
talk about that and then your jump into the Helen Hamler Center for Design. Can you walk us through that? Sure. So I did an engineering degree, not because I wanted to be an engineer. I did it to be a better designer. Mm. So at that time, I realized that in order to be the best creative possible, you actually had to understand how things work, how things were made, how things could be produced. So the engineering degree built on a love of maths and physics, but I actually dropped down from a master's to a bachelor's because I wanted to get into design. Mm. So when I did my master's in design, it felt like coming home. And I really never looked back. The only thing with design is that it got dangerous because I realized I wanted to do design that improved people's lives. That was the mission. Mm. It should serve humanity in some way. And that simple drive actually crushed me a little bit when I left college because the jobs didn't exist that did that. I had yeah, that's an unusual definition for a designer. Most people, when they think of design, they don't, they don't think about improving the lives of humans. They think about making things more beautiful, more aesthetically more pleasing. Yeah. And I think for me, that was a big change, but a lonely change. Mm. I was very lucky at the Royal College of Art that these principles were there when I was studying. So in my classmates, we all did things that benefited human beings, people or planet in some way. But when I graduated, the jobs I was, you know, applying for and being offered was to create more plastic things for landfill, mm. to create more things that, you know, just for a kind of corporate rat race. They were sort of commercial projects. And I've got nothing against commerce or the corporation, but I also believe that design in its most powerful and conscious form is inclusive and it benefits people. It benefits the planet. So then this little job came up at something called the Helen Hamlin Center for Design. And it was looking at this idea of inclusive design that's more inclusive that expands itself to look at underserved or marginalized populations. And that just hooked me. Mm. That was the job that I said I felt I could do. That's what my heart would sing for each morning when I woke up. I did not need to set an alarm for that job. So it was a deep moment. You know, that was a deep moment when I realized that you really had to follow your heart, your head and your hand. So I joined the Helen Hamlin Center part-time. I was doing other work, other jobs as well. And I jumped full-time about eight years later because I realized this is where I wanted to put my focus. This is where I wanted to lead my life. And this is where I felt I could make a positive difference and leave my fingerprints um, on something. 
And now you're the director of the center. And I was doing some research looking at the website. It's pretty incredible the diversity of projects that the center does. And so can you tell us more about the mission of the center? What type of projects you take on and who you interact with? Because you interact with both the public and private sector. That's right. The Helen Hamlin Center for Design exists for one reason and one reason only, and that is to improve life for people. If we boiled it down to two words, it would be improve life. Mm. So in a nutshell is everything that we do. Improve life is a statement that it could feel like you're boiling the ocean. So what we drill that down to, you know, there's probably only 30 of us at the center. So you've got to focus. So we have four focus areas and an institute that's part of the center. Hmm. The four focus areas look at the following. The first is age and diversity, which includes neurodiversity and different dimensions of diversity. The second is healthcare. And these are two traditional research areas that we've been focusing on for nearly 30 years. Mm. Then there's two new areas, which is inclusive design for business impact and inclusive design for social impact. And these two mark a coming of age for inclusive design, where it can be applied to business. It's a part of the private sector, the third sector. We've worked with governments, academic institutions, individuals, communities, small medium enterprises, So those four areas cover that. We've also recently launched something called the Design Age Institute, Hmm. which was funded by the UK government to the tune of 4.9 million. And that looks at creating a market for older people, Hmm. for products, for services, for engendering innovation into the bloodstream. So the Design Age Institute has been going for about a year and we absolutely running with that, creating services and products. We are looking at creating 16 Pathfinder projects around design and aging. Oh, cool. Like, can you talk about one of those projects that you're undertaking? So we are still picking them. So I can't say the names. Just <laughs> We're going well, through the process of... We will pivot, but I find it fascinating that one of the central pillars that the centers focus on is healthcare. How, how did that come to be? Because design and healthcare aren't traditional bedfellows. No. Design and healthcare in the same sentence almost used to be an oxymoron. Yeah. They were opposites. And what role did designers have to play in healthcare? About 20, 25 years ago, one of the founding directors of the center worked with the University of Cambridge and a couple of other key figures in the UK landscape and wrote a seminal publication called Design for Patient Safety. Mm. And this made the case for design, enabling, supporting, Healthcare. So everything from the design of the equipment to the design of the processes, it's 
actually helped the NHS understand how they could design better, specify design, by design. And one of the early converts was a person named Colm Lowe, who subsequently worked as one of the design leads at the NHS and now is directing our new Design Age Institute. So design for healthcare or in healthcare has become a massive subject now. And I'll give you a couple of quick examples. If you take- Before we get into the examples, can you explain what the NHS is? It's, if this is accurate, it's the UK version of maybe CMS Center for Medicaid and uh, Medicare services in the US and which, is that accurate? So the NHS stands for the National Health Service And it was one of the great inventions and innovations in social health. So after the Second World War, there was this experiment, which was, let's make healthcare free for everyone. So everyone has access to healthcare. And initially, it was only going to last for, you know, a few years, a decade. And it's lasted ever since. Mm. So the NHS are one of the biggest employers in the UK, certainly within healthcare. They work all the way from government level right the way down to your local GP. So that's the, it's a national healthcare service and it truly is about national health. Because you people in the UK believe in weird stuff like universal healthcare, which we here in the US (laughs) don't really believe in. So so does that mean like you can just like go into a clinic and not have insurance and not pay for that? So I think many people in the UK don't have insurance because they don't need it. And doesn't stress them out. No, because if you are, if you fall ill, an ambulance will come and take you and you have a choice of hospitals. Very often the NHS has the latest equipment. You know, a friend of mine once said to me, if you're going to be ill, be ill within 1.5 miles of an NHS teaching hospital Mm. because you'll have the latest tools, equipment, the latest thinking. And because it's a teaching hospital, it's striving to be better. Mm. And because it's held by government standards, there's not, you know, that variation that you might see in the private sector. So I've even had some private companies turn around and say, you're better off going on the NHS. They have the equipment to do this. Wow. And I love how design has infiltrated the NHS. Yes. So they were a great partner in our journey in many different ways and the different NHS groups, locations. So whether it's a London NHS or it's a, you know, an NHS in Manchester, they have a certain level of local autonomy, which allows them to work in projects. Mm. And we see more and more that designers are being consulted by clinicians. And some of our most... That is so cool. I I love that. Some of our most powerful collaborations have come from working with clinicians, co-opting clinicians onto the design team, spending times in hospital. And an innovation that came from the Royal College of Art is called the Helix Center, which is based at St. Mary's um, Hospital at Imperial College. And that's placed 
a design studio in the center of a Victorian hospital. And the idea is that having the designers, you know, the innovators and the engineers on site, it means they have absolute, you know, no red tape, direct access, direct line of sight with what's happening on the wards. That's amazing. That's like planning a IDEO into a, a hospital and go yes. have at it. Think about designing better product services for the humans at this hospital. Yeah. And it was right by the main entrance. So everyone had to walk by it. So there was no excuse for not knocking on the door and going in. I've seen pictures of it. It looks so cool. Yes, it was designed. It was also designed by some RCA students, if um, our memory serves me correctly. It was opened by Prince Charles and it's seen many healthcare innovations. So at the Helen Hamlin Center for Design, you know, our healthcare group, we've done north of 50 projects. Wow. Within design and healthcare. One of those projects that I saw is redesigning the emergency ambulance. And I was yes. looking over it in preparing for this interview. I thought it was just a, such a cool project. Can you talk about why the ambulance needed to be redesigned and what were some of the design interventions? Sure. And, you know, one thing that your ambulances there in London are a lot smaller than our ambulances here in the U.S. Our ambulances are so huge. I guess our streets maybe yeah. are bigger, but I was fascinated by the methodology that you all use and the research, there was a lot of research that was done yeah. and a lot of iteration and prototyping. Walk us through that project. Sure. So the emergency ambulance project was a seven year project. It had a whole host of different partners around it. It actually came out of a three year academic collaboration with a group of different universities, NHS trusts, and design groups. We, what we did there was study the ambulance from a design point of view, but also a clinical point of view. There was issues with infection control. There was issues with weight, because ambulances are quite heavy and they carry around a lot of stuff. There was in issues with it as a working space for para paramedics, but also a patient space. So we looked at all of those things. I mean, an ambulance in the UK is a van with a powerful engine with a box on the back, mm -hmm. and it's filled with cupboards and drawers. There were many improvements that took place, but one of my favorite was this. You know, when we completed the academic study, we took it on as a design study. We managed to get 12 or 13 of the ambulance trusts, each of whom make their own ambulance, specify their own ambulance. We managed to get them in the room to talk about the commonality of issues. And that was a very powerful moment for realizing the equanimity of design as a platform for bringing together different voices. We worked with them on a number of different things, but one thing that I really love was the challenge of can you restock an ambulance in five minutes instead of 45 minutes? So it takes 45 minutes because you open every drawer and every cupboard and you have to see what's there. The idea that we came up with was to scrap the cupboards and instead you have treatment packs. So you have five treatment packs that are, that are the size of a carry-on suitcase. Hmm. 
and they are for the five main things that you might be looking at. So, you know, a maternity pack, a burns pack, a wound pack. And at the end of the shift, you take those five packs out and you put five new ones in. So you've restocked the ambulance in five minutes, not 45. We also looked at fishing. I saw that. And it, it looks cool. and They're colorful. And it seems yeah. like it's just so easy to, it's like plug and play, you know, take it out and put the new pack in and it's clearly labeled. That's it's, right. It's, I, I love it. So it, it really demonstrates the power of design. Another, you know, I, I, another um, thing that came out of that was just getting some common ground in terms of ambulance procurement and specification. So the, the designs that we did haven't been taken up by one manufacturer, but the principles and the practice have been taken up by many. Mm. So the chief executives of the ambulance trusts co-wrote a specification that if you look at it, it could have come from that project. Amazing. It, it was hugely people-centered. And, and things like ambulance staff don't have anywhere to wash hands. And we, we did a test with Imperial College where we had the existing ambulance and our new design. We had an actress simulating a leg, leg injury and we got paramedics to address the injury in both ambulances and we had certain metrics and measures. What the paramedics didn't realize is that the fake blood that they were dealing with actually contained some kind of ultraviolet dye. Mm -hmm. So it had a UV dye in it. So afterwards, when they treated the patient in both spaces, we just looked at what they touched and where the dye was. The old ambulance looked like a Jackson Pollock painting. <laughs> and the new one, you know, the new one had a significant reduction in infection potential. It's so important now with COVID, with that sort of design intervention to prevent um, spread of bacteria and viruses. Yeah. I've heard you say creativity is essential in healthcare, but it's really hard for people to find creativity in hospitals and clinics and medical schools. It's not that obvious. I think those of us who work in healthcare think, well, we don't, creativity, that's not something that we really need. That's more for the artists and musicians. <laughs> yeah. It's creativity is a universal human attribute. I actually did a TEDx talk for the NHS that spoke about this. I saw it. It's great. We'll, we'll link it. <laughs> Absolutely. And it, it speaks, it was a real, it was a real learning moment for me because I went in as the lone designer and there's many times when you're the only designer at a healthcare conference. Mm -hmm. And you've been brought in by some maverick doctor or, you know, some imaginative person who runs a podcast, for instance. <laughs> and they say, come and talk to us about design in the healthcare space. I am so humbled and so enabled by speaking about creativity in the healthcare space. The clinicians, you know, they have a drive also to improve life. They have a drive to make better and they have a drive to create. 
And creativity just becomes this tool for expression if only we would give people permission to use it and the tools. So another magic moment for me was in Hong Kong. I was running a workshop with the senior medics in that city. And we were looking at leadership. I have this research area, application area called creative leadership, which is built on the three values of empathy, of clarity and of creativity. How those doctors came to life and said, we can look at systemic issues such as waiting times at A&E, such as infection control, such as healthcare across the socioeconomic spectrum. Those three values powered by creativity are really important. So we often say you need those three values together hmm. because creativity by itself is a bicycle with pedals, but no chain. Mm. So you're pedaling hard and getting nowhere. Clarity by itself can burn. You know, dictators had clarity, but you, it needs to be balanced. So empathy is incredibly important. But if you only have empathy, you could be a pushover or a weather vane. So Clarity balances that. So right now I'm actually writing a book on that, which looks at the balances between three, these three values and healthcare features heavily, because it's in that those most critical of spaces that you see these three values and creativity come to life. And I have one more thought on the Hong Kong situation. I, again, in Hong Kong, I did a short workshop with the hospital leads. Hmm. So the hospital directors for a group of hospitals. And one of the exercises we did is to get them to visually represent the challenges of accident and emergency, but they weren't allowed to use PowerPoint, Excel spreadsheets or words. They had to do it using pictures and role playing. They had such a blast, but that was one thing that was there. You, know, you gave them that permission to use their imagination, yeah. which we don't get to do a lot in healthcare. So they did a lot of visual dialogue and storytelling. And apart from the fun, what happened is they got down to the human storytelling. And that was the permission that creativity get, gave them. Mm. It's the humans that they are dealing with, their staff, their patients, and very often in healthcare, you know, what you think might be the issue isn't the issue. Yeah. I think a lot of times us clinicians, we're so used to being the experts and we think we know what the problem is and we, cause we're around the problems a lot, but if you take a step back and you go, mm, maybe this isn't really the problem. Maybe the problem of a busy emergency room isn't that there's a lack of space, but it's actually a policy problem where you can board patients in the ER and hallways, yeah. which we do all the time and not have a policy to get them upstairs within six hours to an inpatient floor to so get free up space yeah. in, in, in the emergency department. Yeah. And, you know, we did a project that was looking at patient dignity. The newspapers about 10 years ago were publishing a lot of headlines of how 
men and women were in the same ward and the Minister of Health then actually made an announcement that they were going to do something. So we were part of a group of people that were brought in to look at this. We believe in actually going out and seeing the issue, actually immersing yourself, observing, interviewing, experiencing. What we realized that was number seven or eight on a priority list of other things. So whether I'm sharing a ward with a man or a woman didn't really matter. Mm. Actually, when am I going to be seen? Where am I in the process? What are we having for lunch today? Where are my family? Who's going to give me some feedback? And, you know, you would hear a lot of groups of clinicians, doctors walking around and they have a, a huge heart and a huge capability But you would hear things like, there's a broken hand, a broken foot, there's a broken head. And you're sitting there thinking, I'm Rama, you know, I'm scared. I want to get back to my work. I'm a designer. So I'm not a broken hand or a broken foot. And these are just some of the things of designing in a level of humanity and space. And every clinician, you know, clinicians have joined our teams as well. So we had... Surgical staff join our design team to redesign things like the neck brace Mm. and knee knee surgery, so knee replacements. And that was a really interesting project because knee replacement tools and implants can cost thousands of pounds. And we managed to bring it down to a couple of hundred pounds by, you know, moving away from metal to composites and actually redesigning the tools to enable surgeons to lean into their preferences Mm. so that was one magic moment when we brought the surgeons on board with us because we said you know you guys are human beings too you people are human beings and if you look at the different way a different surgeon will approach the same procedure how do we lean into that how do we encourage difference so design isn't about one size fits all design is about a deepening of choice. Mm. I want to ask a question about design research and how you actually get to understanding those problems. I've heard you talk about deep data versus big data. And I love this concept of deep data that design researchers do. Can you talk about that? Oh, yes, I love it. (laughs) Big data is very useful. So it's Not that big data is good, deep data is bad, but they complement each other. So deep data will give you the statistics. It'll give you the broad picture. It'll tell you where to look and what's going on there. But we shouldn't just put our reliance in numbers because even statistics are just numerical opinion. Mm. But they give you an orientation. They, They can be a North Star. So big data is when you talk to a thousand people and you ask them 10 questions and you get 10 points of truth. Mm. Deep data is when you speak to 10 people and you ask them a thousand questions and you go deeply into the full dimensions of their lives. And if you pick those people carefully, you can get statistical correlation, but you also need to pick them to be in the corners of the square. So you get the whole square. So the whole point with deep data is that you don't just ask people who are average or mainstream or represent a commonality. 
you ask people who push the boundaries. Mm. So you ask people who are struggling with their health, people who are great with their health. You know, we did a project looking at pregnancy, 104 million women pregnant at any given point, typically. And the mysteries of the first trimester, you know, what's going on there, that point where you don't really make the announcements publicly, life is changing, bodies are changing. And instead of just taking the data that was there, we went out and talked to 20 different women. Mm. And we talked to women who would classify their experience as difficult, some as positive, some that were nonchalant. And that told us so much about pregnancy and about the experiences. And particularly, we wanted to look at sources of support, whether it was medical, digital, personal, family, your partner. And you discover so much more by going to the extremes. Yeah. I think about that. I love those definitions because I think about my work as a physician and researcher. As a researcher, I work with big data sets. And I look at the research out there where there's a sample size of like 10, 20,000 people, but, and that's, it's great. It gives me so much knowledge, but I also learned so much by talking to that one patient at the bedside mm -hmm. and taking some time and interviewing them. And I'm getting data points that are yeah. just as huge, but in a different, it's different type of data. And yeah. there's so much insight that I can get by talking to that one patient at the bedside that I could not get from a huge data set. Yeah. I think in a nutshell there, you've described the magic of working in healthcare because it comes down to people. Mm -hmm. So what does health mean? This was one of the very first workshops we did where clinicians and pharmacists and designers ourselves were really surprised because People said, healthcare to me means playing with my dog, a smile from a stranger, a glass of wine. It doesn't mean medication, compliance, and expert opinion is not at the center of my universe. And when you start to say to people, well, if you're getting a cold, who do you talk to? Well, it's not your doctor. You moan to the person next to you. It's your coworker, typically. And that was a huge insight. We did a project called Circles of Care, it looked at redefining the circles of care that are around the person. So how do you enable that? How do you enable conversations at work to happen that actually enrich your healthcare? And I love those little differences, dilemmas, commonalities, insights. It's like every day, you're taught something, you see something, you're inspired by something. Um, I love the work of the center. How can people find out more about the center? What, do you have a website? Yes. So the center's website is on the Royal College of Arts website. So if you go to rca.ac.uk and you search for Helen Hamlin Center, you'll find us. Amazing. I love the work that you're doing. It's inspiring. And thank you so much for joining us from the UK and being on the show, Rama. It's an honest pleasure. And to share these stories of commonality and connection and humanity, it just drives that home, even in these lockdown times. So thank you so much. You can find Rama on Instagram and Twitter. His handle is at 
R-A-M-A-G-H-E-E-R-A-W-O. And reach out to me via Instagram, Twitter, and email. My Twitter is at B-O-N-K-U, Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U, or send me an email at bon at designlabpod.com. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you soon.